Thank you to the choir. Excellent job, guys. Listen, I've been to a lot of churches. Having a good choir, it's, it's actually more rare than you might think. Right? There's a lot of choirs out there that are, that are pretty bad. So it's quite a, a benefit and a blessing that we have a very good, solid choir. So we just want to thank them for, for all their hard work um, and the constant time they're, they're putting in. I want to thank you guys for coming out and helping Saturday, yesterday, uh, with the parsonage. Listen, I'm the least handy person in the world. All right? If it was up to me to figure this stuff out, it would be a disaster. I was trying to just pull up some staples from the floor in my... Nice little lady hands, couldn't do it. And Alex came right in and just destroyed all the staples instantly. And it was kind of embarrassing, but he, he did the work that I couldn't do. So thank you guys for your help. We would be, yeah, we'd be in a lot of trouble without all your work. Um, glad you're with us this morning. We're going we're gonna to continue our journey uh, through the book of Mark. We're, we're trying to figure out just who exactly this, this Jesus is. All right, we believe here, here at Woodside that, that Jesus is the point of everything. All right, it, it's all about Jesus. Everything that we do is, is because of Jesus. Now, that's quite the claim these days. So, so we're studying and, and teaching about Jesus from the book of Mark so that we can better understand why he is so important. Wherever you fall on the spectrum of belief, from disbelief to belief in Christ as, as your Savior, it cannot be denied that, that Jesus was very unique and one of the most, we think, the most important people in all of history. No one has had such a profound effect on history. No one has had such a profound effect on Billions of lives, even 2,000 years after he lived. So there's something about this Jesus that is worth studying, whether, whether you believe in him or not. All right? Everyone's got to do something with Jesus Christ. All right? You either have to come up with some good way to explain away um, who he was and how significant he was and the impact he made, or you have to accept what he said about himself. But you can't just ignore someone as significant as Jesus. Every one of us has to do something with him. Remember, all right, this guy claimed that he was the creator god of the universe. Right? He either was or he was absolutely crazy. Right? So we need to study and know about this Jesus. So this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 14 through 20. Mark 1 verses 14 through 20. You can go ahead and turn there or you can find it printed inside of your bulletin um, for you there as well. This morning we're going to do a couple of things, but we're primarily we're going to look at the message of Jesus briefly. Um, and then primarily most of our time is going to be spent on, on our response, um, what we are called to do in light of what Jesus has done, which is repent, believe, and follow. All right, you can follow along in Mark 1, 14 through 20. This is God's word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for preserving your word, Father, so that we can accurately know about you and about your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray right now that you would be with me, Father, as we um, discuss some some difficult things um, from your word. Father, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would speak with with kindness and and, and gentleness, and I would speak clearly and speak well. But Father, that that you would move me aside and and that you would be the point. Father, and that you would get the credit and that you would get the glory 
And that I would decrease and that you would increase. Father, I pray right now that you would focus our hearts and our minds. Father, give us a desire to to know your son and and to know um, what we are called to do in in response to him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so back in the very first sermon um, that we started three weeks ago, we talked about a lot about the message of Jesus in verse 1. But there's still a lot we can cover, right? You can never exhaust all of the gospel. And our first th- verse this morning, it starts off with a transition. John has been arrested. I remember John. We talked about him two weeks ago. John was the forerunner. He was the one that came before Jesus, pre- preparing the way for him and, and pointing people forward to Jesus. Now that Jesus is here, John's job is done. And we're going to run, we'll run into John one more time um, later in Mark chapter 6, where John is arrested and, and killed. But for the rest of the time, from here on out, it is all about Jesus. All right, John has played his part, and, he, and he's done so excellently. And his disappearing from the scene now makes sense, considering, remember, his last words that John said. He said that he wasn't even worthy to, to bend down and to untie Jesus' shoe. He, he can't even begin to compare to Jesus. So, so he steps aside, and, and Jesus steps into the spotlight. So now Jesus is the focus of our story, and he's doing what? It says he is proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, before we really jump into our text and and get into what the text has to say, I think this is a good opportunity to um, kind of go on a brief little tangent. If if you're following along in in your King James Version, or if you're following along in in the Pew Bible, um, you'll notice that verse 14 is a little bit different. What does verse 14 say there? It says that Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, that's a pretty big difference. The gospel of God versus the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, so what's going on here? Why, why, is, why is there a difference between these two? I think it's important to step back for a second and, and ask the question of how we got our English Bibles. How we got the Bible that we're holding and reading and studying every day. We need to understand where they come from, and and why they say what they do, so that we can better understand them, and in so doing, better understand God. We study the Word so that we can know God. And I want to explain briefly a little bit why I preach from from the version that I I preach from. Alright, contrary to what some, some old white guys in the South might tell you, God didn't write the Bible in King James English. Alright, I don't know if you've heard that. The Bible was written down over uh, two to 3,000 years ago, over the course of a thousand-year period, and it was primarily written in two languages. All right? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, all right? the language of the Jewish people. And in the New Testament, God was brilliant. God knew what he was doing. The New Testament was written down in Greek. God had been waiting for this particular time where Greek was the language of the entire Western world almost. So he has it recorded in Greek in the New Testament, and boom, it spreads like wildfire because everyone speaks Greek. So so the Bible is written many centuries ago. It's written in different languages. So how do we get our English Bibles? Well, they are translations from the Greek and the Hebrew into English. Take the book of Mark for an example. Mark was written about the year 60. All right, Jesus lived from about 30 to 33, and then about 25 years later, Mark writes this, this account of Jesus' life. So Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, perfectly writes down what God wants him to write down. It was inspired. We call it inerrant. Right? Inerrant just means it is without error. If God had a hand in writing it, and God is without error, 
right? Then it makes sense that what God produces would also be without error. Right. But here's, I need you to hang on with me for a few minutes. Here's where it gets a little bit tricky. All right, I don't know if you know this. We don't have the original copy of what Mark wrote. All right, we actually don't have the original copy of a single book of the Bible. All right, this is important because some people freak out about this, but this is one of the things that non-Christians are going to come to you constantly with. This is one of the things I hear all the time. Well, we don't have the originals, so you guys you can't even know what God said in the Bible. We're going to explain why we can. Why we can know what the originals said, even though we don't have them. We can know because we have copies and copies and copies and copies of the originals. We have literally thousands of them. Right away, when the apostles write these books of the Bible, right, they start sending them out and distributing them among the churches. And what happened? People didn't have computers, all right, they didn't have copy machines, so they sat down. They so cherished God's word, they so wanted God's word for themselves that they sat down by hand and started copying it out for themselves. Right? They, they wanted God's word in their hands. So they sat down in the Greek or the Hebrew, whatever they're copying, and they made their own copy of God's word. Have you ever done this, by the way? Have you ever, I, I got this a lot in elementary school. You know, you get in trouble. What do they have you do? They have you go, like, open up a page of your history book, and you just have to write for an hour, right? You just have to copy it. This is also a really good thing you can do in, in your time with the Lord. Just sit and, and write and copy down scripture. I, I found that I very much enjoy doing that. But what happens if you take a really long passage and you work for a really long time and you sit there and you try to copy it, right? You're looking from here to here. You're just writing nonstop. You're getting tired. Well, what happens? Well, you naturally, you know, you accidentally skip a word or you accidentally misspell a word that you're not really sure how it is spelled. And and so some of these things kind of get into the copy that you're making. This is what people are talking about when they're going to come to you, non-Christians, and say, well, you can't trust the Bible, guys. The, The Bible has all these errors in it. This is what they're talking about. Simple spelling mistakes and simple kind of switching words or missing words kind of as it was being copied. Think about this. I'm going to explain this, so, so bear with me. Think about if I took 20 of you right, and I send you into the fellowship hall. All right, I put you around a table and I give you one copy of the Gospel of John. And I say, I want all of you to copy down the entire book of the Gospel of John. You've got a few hours to do it. All right, then when the time is up and you're all finished, I come in and I take the original copy of John away. All right, what would we have? We would have 20 slightly different copies of the original copy of John, right? Think about it. You would misspell a word here. You would misspell a word here. We'd have a couple differences here and there. So how would we know what the original said, right? It's actually really pretty brilliant. We would lay down all 20 of the copies and we'd compare them. We'd look at verse 1 and we'd see that 19 of the 20 verses 1s are exactly the same. And then there's one verse 1 that has this slight misspelling. Right, so what does that mean? It means that we know that the 19 that have it exactly the same, that's the original. And what we do is we go verse by verse, comparing all the copies, and we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt what the original says by comparing all of the copies. Does that, does that make sense? None of, us, none of you would make the same mistakes in the same spots, so we could weed out the mistakes and know what the copy says. And that's amazingly how God has preserved his word throughout history. Listen, we don't need the originals. It's probably good that we don't have the originals because we'd make some sort of relic out of them or, or we'd worship them or pass them around and they'd become their own little god. We don't, God decided in his wisdom to not allow us to have the originals. So we have copies of the originals, thousands and thousands of them. And that's what they do is they lay out all the copies of God's word and they can compare them. And they know beyond a shadow of a doubt 
what the original says by comparing all of the copies. So you can be confident in God's word that you're holding and that you're reading. You don't need to doubt God's word. You don't need to be worried when someone comes to you and oh, the Bible's got all these errors in it. This is what they're talking about. Simple spelling errors in a couple of the copies that we know weren't original. So we know what God's word is. You can trust your, God, your Bible. So why are we talking about this? Let's go back to verse 14. And, and why the difference? The gospel of God versus the gospel of the kingdom of God. That is a difference. Why is there a difference in God's word? Well, it's because, bear with, think, think with me here, the King James was translated over 400 years ago. And when they translated it over 400 years ago, they had many fewer of those copies to compare. Think back to our illustration, right? We had 20 copies. And it was pretty easy to look at those 20 copies and figure out what they said. Right? Imagine if we only had three or four copies. Right? It'd be a little more difficult to be 100% sure what the original said. And that's what it was like with the King James. These, these translators were working with just a handful of copies of God's Word. And they did an amazing job. The King James is brilliantly accurate and it's very well written and in beautiful language. All right? It is amazing that it is as good as it is. You can and you should trust your King James Version. But today, we have thousands. Look, they worked from about six. Today we have thousands of copies of God's, of these original, not the original, but thousands of copies of God's Word. So today we are working from exponentially more and more copies, so it's easier to know what the originals said. That's the difference. All right? The King James translated just a few copies 400 years ago, while what I'm preaching from, the ESV, is, is translated just about 10 years ago from thousands and thousands of copies. And that's, that's the first reason why I use the ESV. I'm not listening. I'm not saying the King James is bad. It is good. God has done amazing things through the King James Version over the last 400 years. I don't want to discourage you from using it. If you use it and you like it and it works for you, works for you please use it. You can and you should trust it. But just know that there are some minor differences like this one due to its, its age and the lack of copies. Consider Matthew 23, 24. Right, in the King James, it says, Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, what does that mean, to strain at a gnat? I don't, you don't strain at gnats. Right? The Greek says, which strain out a gnat. And that makes a lot more sense. You're straining water and you're trying to get the gnat out. So you strain out a gnat. So there are these small differences kind of here and there between the two. And the second reason I preach from the King James is for even is evangelistic purposes. All right, guys, listen. We want the Bible and the language that people understand. All right, if I were to go um, to someone who only spoke Filipino and I was to preach the gospel to them in English, that would be absolutely ridiculous, right? That, that would serve no purpose. What I would do is I would take someone like Edwin or someone with me and have them translate for me from the English into the Filipino so the person that I'm speaking to can understand what I'm saying. That's the point of translation, to get the Bible into the language of the people. Right? I want the people that we're reaching out to, I want non-Christians to understand God's Word. Consider Hebrews 7.18. This is a good one. Hebrews 7.18. The King James says, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. I have no problem admitting to you that I have no idea what that means. All right? But listen to, to the English standard. It says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. 
Now that makes sense, right? We're trying to get the language, the Bible, into the language of the people so that we can reach people with the gospel. And that's why they translated the King James 400 years ago, because they wanted it in the language that the people can understand. That's why we have translations. That's why we have different translations. And that's why there are minor differences. But either way, either is good. You can trust your word, right? They're, they're saying basically the same thing. No major doctrine, no major anything has changed between the two translations, all right? So trust your word and, and read your Bibles, whatever it is, whatever version it is that, that best benefits you. But that's why we preach up here from, from the English Standard Version, and that's why there's a difference between what I'm reading and, and what you may be reading. All right, thank you for bearing with me. Let's, let's really get into our text kind of for the rest of our time. This is, a, this is a really important text for us. Verse 14. These are the first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark. All right, so that's, that's pretty significant. And we've already discussed it a little bit. We've got one simple state, we've got one simple statement and then two commandments. Everything that Jesus would teach for about three years boils down to this. All right, it's simple, but it's very dense. The Gospel, remember, was simply the good news of the saving activity in Jesus Christ. But here we get a little bit more information. Right? Verse 14 tells us that Jesus was proclaiming. It says he was preaching the gospel. And then verse 15 gives us the content of that preaching. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, listen, we have four of the most important words in the Bible right there. Gospel, kingdom, repent, and believe. Gospel, kingdom, repent, believe. We're going to break those down a little bit. And I wish we could spend the whole time on the gospel, but, but we're going we're gonna to run short. But just remember, the gospel is not about you. It's not about me. The gospel is about Jesus and what he has done for you. The gospel is that Jesus has come to live and die in the place of sinners. He has come to bring life to sinners. He has come to bring sinners back to God. We're going to be talking about a gospel a little bit in every sermon that is preached from this pulpit. But this morning, the, the focus of our text seems to be a little bit more on our responsibility. Our response is what our response is to be to the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus has done. Now we're going to look at what we are to do in response to the gospel. When Jesus comes and he proclaims, what's the first thing he says? He says, the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? What time? Well, it goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning of the message. How Jesus was utterly unique in all of history. How Jesus is the point around which all of time revolves. Around this moment. That's what Jesus is saying right here. This is it. This is the time. You've been looking forward to this day from all of history. The Old Testament is constantly talking about and pointing to this day. We've been waiting for this day since the fall. Since God showed up and, and cursed the ground and, and cursed Satan and promised right away from them that he would send one to come, that would come and defeat Satan and redeem man. And Jesus is here saying the time is fulfilled. I am that one. The time is now. I am here. Everything has been waiting for and pointing to this moment. Here it is. Wait no further. This is it. Jesus Christ is what is fulfilled. Now that the time is fulfilled, what happens? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the kingdom, what is the kingdom? Right? The kingdom is simply where the king rules. The kingdom of God is simply God's reign and his rule. It is where he is and where he has authority and where he is in charge. It is the beginning of the fulfillment of what has been promised throughout the Bible, of the age 
to come. It is God breaking in now. It is God starting to make all the wrongs right. It is God starting to fix everything. The kingdom is the inbreaking of the rule of God into our sin-cursed world. What was it that Jesus was doing for much of his ministry? Well, he taught a lot, but he was also casting out demons, and he was healing sickness, and he was calming storms, and he was feeding the hungry. He was beginning the process of restoring creation. He was declaring that the kingdom is here, saying very clearly, the kingdom comes with me. It is a foretaste, right? We have a, we have a taste of it. It is not fully here yet. That's why we're taught to pray by Jesus, thy kingdom come. And this is often referred to as the already not yet of the kingdom. It's already here. Christ has brought it with him. The curse is being reversed. We've, we've tasted it. We have been redeemed. The process has already been started, but it's not done yet. There is, there is more to come. It won't be fully here and complete until Jesus returns. All right? it's, it's like you go to a meal and it's like the appetizer. Right? The appetizer is real food. You, you get a taste of it. You get something good, but you don't go for the point of the appetizer unless you're my wife and I. Sometimes we get out back just for the cheese fries because they're that good. But when you go to a meal, right, the point is the main course. Right? The appetizer just gives you a taste and, and prepares you for the main course. We're getting a taste now, but more is coming. And that's the kingdom. Christ starts it here and he completes it when he returns in the future. The reign and rule of God. It has begun now, but it will grow. It will continue and eventually it will be complete. So here's the big question. Then. If, if that's the kingdom, that's what God is preaching, Jesus is preaching. The big question is, well, alright, obviously, how do we get into that kingdom? That's obviously a big issue. And Jesus tells us two commands simply. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent. We talked about it a few weeks ago with, with John the Baptist. Nowhere are we told to just have faith. We are told to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repentance is an absolutely necessary step to salvation. There is no salvation without repentance. We said a few weeks ago that repentance, remember it was is a turning away from sin. But that we often misunderstand repentance. We think, oh man, you know, I just, I just told this little white lie. I better, I better repent for that lie. Well, okay, and you should. But, but repentance is actually bigger picture. Repentance is the whole direction of your life. Repentance is all-encompassing. What direction is your life going? Is it the direction that, that you want it to go? Or is it the direction that God wants you to go? Do you obey yourself or do you obey God? Repentance is turning away from your way of doing things and turning toward God's way of doing things. It's admitting that you are a sinner, that you have made yourself God's enemy, and that you can't do it, and that you're doomed unless God does something about it. It's not a one-time deal. Listen, you don't just repent just to get to be a Christian. Repentance isn't just for non-Christians to become Christians. Repentance is for all of us. We must be constantly repenting and, and turning away from ourselves and from our attempts to save ourselves and trusting God. Jesus says we must repent. He tells us to repent and then he says to believe. Believe. Have faith. All right, these two words are basically the same word in the Greek. All right, these, these are the same ideas in the Bible. Uh, believe and have faith. Just like we sadly often get repentance wrong, we sadly often get belief and faith wrong as well. We've, we've, we've cheapened belief. We've, we've made belief as easy as possible. 
Biblical faith is a lot different than what we think of as, as belief. There's a lot more to it. It's not about, um, you know, reading something about Jesus and thinking, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. All right, I'll, I'll give that a shot. I'll, I'll pray this prayer and, and then I'll be saved. We've cheapened belief. Nowhere in the Bible are we, are we told to just pray this magic prayer and then we'll be saved. We are told to repent and we are told to believe. What you often get out there on the streets is, just, you know, I've, I've talked with someone like this before. They, they just tell me. Sometimes it's interesting if someone comes to witness to you to kind of pretend like you're not a Christian just to kind of get a feel for, you know, how they do it. You can learn from them a little bit. So it's interesting. But So what you get sometimes is they'll, they'll, they'll pat you on the back and they'll say, you know, just repeat these words after me and then you'll be saved. I don't care if I never see you again. I don't care if there's no real change in life. I don't care if you never come to church again. Um, you'll be good to go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count that as conversion. I'm going to check my box. And I'll be completely honest with you. Sometimes I get really frustrated with, with what passes for evangelism in, in many churches out there. It looks nothing like biblical evangelism. You don't see Jesus handing out cartoon tracts or performing puppet shows on the streets. You don't see him giving four short bullet points about himself and saying, just believe these four things, just pray this prayer, and you'll be saved. No, Jesus says, count the cost. He says, you better make sure you know what you're getting into because this is serious. This is everything. Jesus says, I don't just want your belief. I want, though I demand your life. He turns away. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and looking for Jesus, saying, God, how can I be saved? I'm a pretty good person. I've done this, this, and this. I've come this, this, and this commandment. What does Jesus say to him? He doesn't say, oh, you're pretty good. Pray this prayer and you'll be saved. What does Jesus say? He says, give up your idol or you cannot be saved. Give up your money and you cannot, or you cannot be saved. And what happens? You have the creator, savior, God of the universe standing right in front of this man. And what happens? He walks away. And Jesus lets him go. He doesn't say, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. He says, you must repent. Salvation is a free gift. We can do nothing to earn it or deserve it, but that gift cost Jesus his life. And he says that it will cost us ours as well. A Christian martyr about 60 or 70 years ago, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he famously wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer is just echoing Jesus' own words, which we'll look at in a few weeks, in Mark chapter 8, 34 and 35. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We just sung, we just sang about this in, in, in Mighty to Save. It was a perfect song. A line, in the second or third verse. It says, I give my life to follow everything I believe in. I surrender. That's it. That's what Jesus is calling from each one of us. And that's no easy believism. That's not just read this little cartoon tract and, and pray this prayer, um, and then you'll be saved. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to give it all up. You've got to be ready to give up even your life. Take up your cross and follow me. That is a call to death. We should consider modeling our evangelism a little bit more after how Jesus did evangelism. All right, that, That's what we need to be doing. Now listen, I'm not saying all tracks are all bad. All right? Get good tracks and, and use them wisely. All right? We've got some good John Piper tracks in here that really explain the, the glory of God and, and the beauty and the, magnet and, the um, and the depth 
of the gospel. All right, but these little cartoon devils and, and people learning, burning in fire, and these things, look, these things aren't doing justice to the gospel. All right, let's explain to people about the gospel. Let's care enough about people to really invest time in them and, and to explain to them who Christ is. Repent and believe. I mentioned it earlier before I got sidetracked, but, but biblical belief is much fuller and, and much richer than, than what we think. We think belief is just thinking that something actually happened in history. Right? I believe that that happened. You believe certain things about Jesus, so I must be saved. Right? That's not what the Bible says, actually. Christians have, have generally understood um, belief or, or faith to consist of three parts. Write this down. Remember, this is, this is good. I didn't come up with this, so that's why it's good. Biblical faith is, is three things. It is K-A-T. All right? Cat. This is how you can remember what faith is. K-A-T. Belief consists of knowledge, then assent. Assent. What does that mean? It just means agreement. It is agreeing that something is true. And then T is trust. Faith involves the intellect, the will, and the affections. It is first the K. It is first knowledge, right? Which is just acquaintance with the content of the gospel, right? You have to know something about Jesus before you can believe in him. Or you can't just say, oh, I just, I just believe. I, I just have faith. No, there has to be something that you believe in. You have to know about Jesus to believe in him. And then the second one is the A, is assent, which is recognition and agreement that the gospel is true. Say, so, yes, I know that information, and I believe that it is true. When I was a kid, I loved to study Roman mythology. So I know a lot about Roman and Greek mythology. But I don't assent or agree that it is true. Right? I have knowledge about it, but I don't think that it is actually true. And finally, to have belief, you have to have the T. You have to have trust, which is personal dependence on the grace of, of God um, for salvation. We can't just know something and, and say we think it's true. We have to act on it. This is often illustrated, have you ever heard this explained, with a chair? Right? I don't have to have a chair. Pretend there's a chair here. Um, I can look at a chair, and I can see the chair, and I can believe, yes, there, there is a chair there. I have knowledge of that chair. Right, I can even stand back and, and look at the chair and study it and, and feel it and shake it and think, yeah, I believe that that chair could probably hold my weight. I think that chair could hold me up. Right, but that's not it completely yet. That's not enough. To actually believe in the chair, to actually prove that you have faith in the chair, what do you have to do? You have to sit in the chair. You have to take all of your weight off of your own two feet and rest your weight in the chair. That's how you prove that you have belief or faith in the chair. That's the trust. That's biblical faith and belief. It can't be saving faith if it is not all three of these things. Faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. And, and God is the object of all three of these. You have to know something about Jesus. You have to agree with it's true. And then you have to personally trust in it for your salvation. You have to sit down in the chair. Consider, consider James 2.19. This passage always terrified me when I was a kid. It, James is talking about the demons. Right? And he says, he says, the demons believe in God. Right? The demons have the K and the A. The demons have knowledge about God and about Jesus and about the gospel. And they know that it's true. They know that it's all true things. But they don't have the T. They don't trust the gospel. They hate the gospel. They know about it, but they don't trust in it. And my fear is that there are a lot of Christians out there, maybe, maybe some in here who are standing back and looking at the chair, believing it exists, and thinking, yeah, I think that chair could hold me up, but they're not sitting down in the chair. 
Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel to be saved. We have to trust. We have to rest our weight on Jesus Christ. Let's move on. Look at verses 16 through 20. I'll read verse 17. I mean, it kind of sums up the whole episode nicely. Jesus is coming to four men, and he's going to call them to his service. It says there in verse 17, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. We are called to repent, we are called to believe, and we are called to follow. This is how Jesus worked in his ministry. He called people to himself, and he lived with them for three years, living in front of them, being an example before them, and teaching them. He's, what is he doing? He's discipling these guys. And you can break discipleship down into two eyes. Right? Discipleship is instruction, and it is imitation. Right? It is teaching, and it is exampling. That's how Jesus operated, and that's, that's how we are to operate as well. Jesus shows up to these men, and he says, you four follow me. And notice that there is no questioning on the part of the disciples. They lay down what they're doing. They leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Follow just means to imitate. So the disciples, they would travel with Jesus. And yes, they would be taught by Jesus. But they also learned by watching him live. By watching him pray. By watching him interact with and love and serve other people. Following Jesus means doing what Jesus does. Alright, it means imitating Jesus. It means acting like Jesus. Jesus didn't come to these men and say, oh, just, just pray this little prayer, just believe in me, and then you can do whatever you want. No, he said, follow me. Do what I do, obey what I say. And this then is the answer to our evangelism problem earlier. We do evangelism as Jesus did evangelism. No tricks, no gimmicks, just loving people and building relationships with people and teaching the gospel to people. And that's it. That's evangelism. Jesus said, I will make you become fishers of men. And how do they learn to do that? They learn to do that by watching Jesus do it. It's it's caring for people as much as Jesus did, and thus sharing the good news with them as Jesus did. It's it's that simple. And this whole following thing that Jesus is doing here, this was was common practice back then for, for Jewish rabbis. Right? They would all have these guys that would follow them around. This wasn't only Jesus doing this. But it would have been unheard of back then to conceive of someone being a disciple, being a follower of one of these rabbis, and not obeying that rabbi. Right? There just wasn't a category for that. And it's the same, and even more so, when it comes to Jesus. We saw just a second ago that Jesus demands repentance and belief. And both of those involve taking action. They involve taking a step. Even the belief involves action. It involves sitting down in the chair. We have to trust And these four men do so here. They give up everything they've known, and they follow Jesus. And for every one of them, this would lead them straight to their deaths. There's this weird idea out there that that I don't really understand. It's that Jesus Christ, the all-knowing, ever-present, almighty creator and sustainer of the universe, the Lord and the King of all of reality, can save us without actually becoming our King and our Lord. Sometimes you'll hear people call us, they'll say, oh, I'm a, I'm a carnal Christian. Which they take to mean, you know, I prayed a prayer, God has saved me, but, but nothing has really changed in their life. They're exactly the same as they were before. There's no repentance, there's no fruit, and there's no evidence. But they think, oh, you know, well, I'm good to go. I, I prayed the magic prayer. It doesn't matter what I do, I've got my fire insurance now, right? That's all that matters. The problem with this idea is that you can't find it anywhere in the Bible. 
Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? If He is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, I'll be the first to admit, we are, we are not perfect. I am not perfect. I continue to struggle with sin. I take a step back every now and then. We, we will always be struggling and battling with sins as long as we're living in this world. But there is always a progression. When God changes, when God saves someone, He always begins the process of changing that heart. No matter how slow the process is, He always begins the process of making us more and more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, let's look at a few examples from Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, it calls us new creations. Galatians 5 tells us about the fruits of the Spirit, uh, that these are the things that will characterize someone that God has saved. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that mark a Christian. Verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk. Let us walk by the Spirit. Ephesians 4.22 tells us to put off our old self and to be renewed and to put on our new selves, which are created. How are they created? They are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And Ephesians 1.5 tells us to be imitators of God and to walk in love as Christ walked. I could go on and on, but, but does any of those sound like this idea of, of what people call a carnal Christian? Listen, when God saves us, He also changes us. The change demonstrates the salvation. The obedience is a necessary result of the salvation. It is the fruit, Jesus calls it. It is the evidence that we have actually been saved. We are not saved by works. Don't hear me saying that. I don't care how many good things you do, you can never save yourself. But the Bible is consistent in always affirming that when God saves someone, Good works will always follow as an evidence of that salvation. You can't just say you believe in Jesus and go on doing whatever it is that you want. Remember our repentance illustration from a couple weeks ago. We said that you can visualize sin as as walking in this direction, right? You're walking in the direction that you want, doing whatever you want, pursuing the ends that you desire instead of what God wants. And we said repentance was the full 180 degree turn this way. It's not just stopping the sin here. It's the full 180 return to doing what God wants, to doing things God's way. That's the obedience. If the repentance hasn't happened, if there is no obedience whatsoever, if there is no evidence of a turn away from sin, there has been no salvation. Jesus doesn't say believe. He says repent and believe. He says follow me, be like me. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. If there is no obedience, there is no salvation. I don't care what you say you believe, show me. And that's what James says in, in James chapter 2, 17. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What does James say? He's saying, look, there's not some physical part of me that, that is my faith that I can show you. I can't show you my faith. So how do we see it? We see it by watching people live. We see faith played out and demonstrated in people's lives as they as they act more like Christ and become more like him. James is not saying that we are saved by works at all. He is saying that someone who has genuine saving faith, someone who has been saved by God will always be changed by God. True saving faith will always show itself in a life 
with um, change, with, with good works. It, it, it shows itself in our lives as Christians as we live as a church, as we love and we, we serve each other. Listen, we're going to sin. We're going to offend each other. We're going to make each other mad. But, but this is, there is always forgiveness. There is patience. There is joy. And there is kindness. Those are the things that Christians are called to be like. These are the things that Christians do. James is basically saying, he says, I don't care how many times you prayed a magic prayer. I don't care how many times you walked an aisle. I don't care how many times you've been baptized. Show me your life. Let me see that change has actually occurred. Because think about it. A true encounter with the risen and glorious Jesus Christ, a true encounter with the amazing grace of God, never leaves us exactly the same as we were before. It always changes us. It always begins an observable process of making us more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says the exact same thing in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 15, 8, he says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and what? And so prove to be my disciples. The fruit, the works, the obedience, they don't save us. They cannot save us. But they always follow true salvation. They are the evidence. Jesus himself says that the fruit, that our lives prove that we are his disciples. Jesus says, follow me. This week, as I was kind of working, one of my, one of my favorite bands from when I was younger, and in high school and college, they put out their first album for a while. And I thought I'd give it a quick listen just to kind of see what it was like. These guys have been going for 20 years, right? So they're about 40 now. They're not, you know, young teenagers, you know, with all this teenage angst and singing these songs about lost love and trying to find meaning. So I thought, you know, I'd be interested to see kind of what they're singing about now. What was interesting is they were singing about the exact same stuff as they were singing about 10 and 20 years ago. I read through some of their lyrics, and there's things about, you know, they say, oh, we get to this point. It says, it's strange to find out that, that I'm lost and I didn't even know it. Right? These aren't Christians singing this stuff. And one of those songs is about this guy saying how much he, he hates the way he thinks and he feels, but he feels like he just can't change. He, he just kind of breathes and, and gets through each day. These guys have been massively successful in the world's eyes. They are fantastically talented musicians, but they are utterly lost. They are searching. They are striving for anything, for some sort of meaning, but they just can't find it. They keep writing music. They keep putting out albums. They keep writing profound lyrics, but they never get anywhere. They never find satisfaction. They never find meaning. They can't find it. And Jesus comes and he says, I am it. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is here. Everything that you have been looking for, everything that these guys are looking for is right there in Jesus. And Jesus says that to every one of us. We may not be world famous musicians, but we all have that same feeling inside of our gut. We're all striving. We're all hurting. We all just want some answers. We all just want some sort of rest or some sort of fulfillment. And Jesus says, I am it. He says, you will not find it anywhere else but in me. And he calls us. He, he demands of us that we repent and believe. Being a Christian is not coming to church on a Sunday morning and putting, putting a few bucks in the offering. It's not occasionally reading your Bible. It's not even saying that you are a Christian. No, being a Christian encompasses your entire life. It is the thing that identifies you. It is the thing that you are about. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is not just one extra thing that we tack on to all these other things that we're about. It is the thing, and we have to take it seriously. 
I'll be honest with you, I was really convicted by this stuff when I was working on this sermon throughout this week. Much of my life, I was, I was this guy. You know, I, was, I walked the aisle, I, I prayed the prayer, I did all the, the stuff. I probably prayed the prayer about 5,000 times kind of growing up as a kid. But at first, when I was five, right? and they are like, all right, yeah, good, you're saved. But then nothing changed. High school, I looked like anyone else out there. There was no fruit. There was no repentance. There was no evidence whatsoever. In college, it was that God's grace really took over. God showed up, and God's grace got in my heart. And as slow as the process has been, just ask Melissa. I'm still a jerk. I'm still a terrible sinner sometimes. But as slow as the process has been, there is change. There is development. There is progress by God's grace. Not because of me, but because of God's grace. So be honest with yourself. Do you really believe all of this stuff? I'm not asking if you believe in Jesus. I'm not even asking if you believe that that he died and, and rose from the dead for sins. I'm asking, do you biblically believe it? Have you trusted in it? Have you taken all of your weight off of yourself, everything that you are, and rested it in Jesus Christ? And if you say yes, then prove it. Jesus says we prove that we are his disciples by our fruit. James says that we show our faith by our works. Could someone in your life, looking outside and watching you, could someone tell that there is something different? Or do you look exactly the same as everyone else around you in the world? Jesus calls us to be different. When he saves us, he changes us. There is always fruit. There is always some evidence. But I'll make sure and say it one more time so you don't hear me wrong. You are not and you cannot be saved by your works or by your own goodness. You cannot save yourself. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the answer is not go out and do some good things so that God will save you. The answer is repent and believe. And you can only do that in the power of God's Spirit. Only God can bring a dead heart back to life. I'll close with, with Ephesians 2, but I think just brilliantly lay some of this out. Go home this week and just study Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, over and over and over again. I'll read the last, I'll read the last few verses. Paul's writing in Ephesians 2, I think it's 8 or 9. He says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Tell me, do you really believe this stuff? Have you repented? Have you believed? Have you followed Jesus Christ? Jesus says that we prove that we are his disciples by our lives. Guys, there is nothing more important than Jesus Christ. And I promise you, I promise you that he is worth it. He will not let you down. He is worth giving up absolutely everything for It's either you give up everything and you gain Christ, or we give up nothing and we end up losing everything, including Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Father, I I confess um, my sin. Father, I confess my tendency to to wander and, and to do my own thing. Father, I confess my weakness and my need for you and my need for Jesus Christ and a Savior. Father, I don't do all of this well. I I stumble and I take a step backwards, Father. Father, I pray and ask that you would be making me more like Christ. Father, forgive me of, of my sin and my weakness and make me more like your son. Father, I pray that you would give me a desire to obey and a desire to follow. And that you would be making me more and more like your son. 
Father, I pray for everyone in this room, Father, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would show us how much we need a Savior, Father, and show us those areas in our lives where we are not following you, where we are keeping and hiding for ourselves. Father, I pray that you would take over, that you would save us, that you would sanctify us, Father, and that you would use us mightily um, for your name and for your glory. I thank you for this church. I thank you that there's a church that, that loves your word and that, that wants to know about you and wants to get the gospel out into this community. So, Father, give us wisdom as, as we desire to do that. Father, use us um, to bring glory to your name. Father, we thank you for the, for the privilege of being included in, in what you're doing. But Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you for your word and your truth, even when they're difficult and even when they're, even when they're painful and convicting. Father, use this time to make us like your son. pray all these things in his name. Amen.